From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, the right role for police. Where do they belong? Where don't they? It's no secret that sometimes a police officer's presence can escalate a situation. If someone is in crisis and a police officer shows up, sometimes that can be very scary or they're afraid that they're in trouble. From Denver to Minneapolis, they're rethinking the role of the police force. Then CPR's Andrew Kenny distills for us Senate candidate John Hickenlooper's ethics violations as governor. The ruling came as ballots hit the mail. And later, no amount of creativity may save some restaurants from falling off a financial cliff. Plus, some advice from a server to other servers. If management doesn't talk through their reopening plans with you... Maybe it's time to move on. (laughs) This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Policing in Denver changed over the weekend, in part because a court intervened and in part because of public pressure. On Sunday, DPD updated its language to, quote, clarify the existing policy of not allowing chokeholds or carotid compression techniques with no exceptions. Also now in effect, if an officer intentionally points a firearm at someone, it has to be reported to a supervisor so the data can be collected. And the third change, the SWAT unit, quote, will activate their body-worn cameras when executing tactical operations. So all that came down Sunday evening. The beginning of the weekend, though, Friday night, brought a victory for protesters. A judge ruled in favor of four demonstrators who said they were targeted and injured by Denver police, even though they were acting peacefully. Doing something about the police brutality during the protest felt like the first step to doing something about police brutality in general. Amy Schneider is one of the four plaintiffs. She's a union organizer. She says in her decade or so protesting for racial justice, she's never seen anything like she has in Denver these past few weeks. For instance, on the third day of protests, she says... There was a bit of a face-off between protesters and the cops, and I was in that crowd... Um, just chanting. And out of nowhere, the cops would start spraying the tear gas. Um, That's not how it's supposed to be used. Like, these are chemical weapons. The scene she describes is similar to what the judge cited in his order, which increases the threshold police must meet to use these kinds of tactics. The judge said he'd reviewed numerous videos that showed police using pepper balls or pepper spray or tear gas against peaceful protesters. He found the plaintiffs, quote, established a strong likelihood that the Denver police engaged in excessive force contrary to the Fourth Amendment. Amy Schneider decided to join the lawsuit because of a specific experience. She was arrested for a curfew violation while she was out protesting. She says it was an act of civil disobedience and she knew the risks. But she didn't expect to find herself tear-gassed, face down on the ground, with an officer holding her in what she says was a position similar to the one George Floyd died in. That confrontation, of course, ended differently for her than it did for Floyd. I walked home and I was able to file a lawsuit and I was able to win that lawsuit and I was able to get press attention. And I have no doubt in my mind that that is 100 percent because I am a white woman. She says she doubts her friends of color would have gotten the same outcome. And so she wanted to use her position of privilege to benefit others. You know, this was my chance to really like we see white woman tears weaponized 
all the time across the country to hurt black people. And this was like my chance to do the exact opposite um, and actually use my skin color for good and to the advantage of people who are not just myself. In fact, three of the four plaintiffs are white, she says. Schneider thinks it's a big reason the case got resolved quickly and a big reason the judge sided with them, limiting the circumstances in which Denver police can use tear gas, pepper bullets and spray, as well as other munitions. The victory bowled her over. I mean, shock is really the only word for it. How often do people win a lawsuit against the Denver police department and against any police department? And, you know, especially as I've been protesting for a very long time and I've never seen any type of accountability. So like the fact that there was actually there's some type of accountability right now is just utterly shocking. In the judge's ruling, he said he put limits in place quickly because Denver police had failed to police themselves. He wrote, citizens should never have to fear peaceful protest on the basis of police retaliation, especially not when protesting that very same police violence. So what is the right role for the police? When does the community need them? When does it not? These are questions that some groups have been working on for years. And just a week ago, Denver began responding to a certain kind of 911 call in a new way. Dispatchers can now send a team of mental health experts and not a police officer to a mental health crisis they deem low risk. So, for example, um, individuals experiencing suicidal ideation without an imminent plan, individuals dealing with substance use in the community, you know, proactive contacts, things that really don't involve a public safety or risk component. That is Carly Salon of the Mental Health Center of Denver, and this is part of the new STAR program that stands for Support Team Assisted Response. For years now, mental health advisors have been riding along with Denver police. What's new is that this STAR team will not include an officer by design. It's no secret that sometimes a police officer's presence, just being there, can escalate a situation. Um, If someone is in crisis and a police officer shows up, sometimes that can be very scary or they're afraid that they're in trouble, and that can definitely escalate the situation. Um, Also, I mean, we want to keep the Denver police officers doing enforcement and really have experts coming to deal with behavioral health crises when they arrive. So we're definitely looking at a more appropriate response. The DPD supports the STAR pilots. It's modeled off a successful program in Eugene, Oregon. Ceylon says similar success in Denver could mean STAR expands to help a lot of people. Oh, my goodness. Thousands. (laughs) Thousands, for sure. You know, there are a number of calls that come in through the 911 system that are not public safety or criminal in nature. So there's a huge opportunity to connect individuals in Denver who are in crisis to supportive ongoing resources through this STAR program. I think that we could reach a huge number of people. So STAR is a way to take certain interventions off the plate of the police. But some activists want to go further to end police forces as we know them. That idea has gained traction in Minneapolis, where George Floyd died. Just yesterday, a majority of that city council pledged to dismantle the police department and replace it with a new system of public safety. 
Well, meanwhile, here in Denver, Roshan Bliss is the co-chair of the Denver Justice Project and advocates for transformation of the police force and the justice system. Roshan, welcome to our program. Hi, Ryan. Nice to be here. You were integral to bringing the STAR program here, but when you talk about something like abolishing the police department, is that a philosophical exercise, or as we are seeing in Minneapolis, do you see it as a real possibility? Absolutely, it's a real possibility. Abolishing the police, abolishing prisons is not a metaphor um, or a kind of philosophical idea. It's a real set of strategies. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of people don't understand um, or take that set of strategies seriously. Uh, And that's really in lots of ways what we in the Denver Justice Project um, and in lots of other groups, um, especially right now, Uh, have been trying to say um, for a long time is that we can really imagine and work toward a world without police. It's it's truly possible. I think that what folks might react to is the word abolish, and there may be some who Mm -hmm. think, but who's going to come when an armed burglar is breaking into my house? Right. I mean, this is always the problem, um, is that crime and, you know, threats to public safety are real. Um, and these sorts of issues um, can be dealt with uh, by our communities. And I think it's also a really important nuance that a lot of folks lack and that might, you know, lose me cred in some of the like, you know, hardcore street activist type um, circles for uh, abolition to say that I think that it's also reasonable to imagine that policing as we know it as an institution um, can be abolished while we still retain um, an emergency response mechanism in our communities that can allow us to deal with something like the Aurora theater shooting um, or, you know, a a bank robbery with hostages. Um, That there are some things that an armed organized force um, to protect you know, threats to, to, to people and, and public safety can still exist without having members of that same force out patrolling in black and brown and poor communities, out hassling poor people um, or giving tickets and making traffic stops that end up in shootings. Um, those those systems and, and capacities to respond to those kinds of uh, emergency, you know, violent crises um, can coexist with police abolition. I think that's a really important nuance we need to learn to keep making. Yeah, and it's a nuance I want to explore with you in greater depth. So it sounds to me like the word police is quite fraught for you, but that there would Mm -hmm. still be some sort of emergency, what did you say, an emergency response. Mm -hmm. So is this about rebuilding a police force from the ground up, reimagining what it looks like and renaming it? Is that what I hear you saying? You know, that's a fair question, but I think that the important thing for us to understand is that policing as an institution has a particular history, and it's actually fairly new as far as organized societies go. You know, modern contemporary policing that we would recognize is less than 200 years old. 911 was only widespread um, in in the United States as of the 80s in all major areas. And it means that we can have ways that that we in our community um, take care of ourselves without having armed, badged, uh, 
folks who are part of an institution that can trace its lineage all the way back to um, night watches merging with slave patrols. Here in the United States, um, the Charleston Garden Watch was the first uh, recognizable as kind of modern um, police force, and it had a major role in um, keeping down the slave population of Charleston. Uh, and to abolish, to break the lineage and, and really re- de- decide to rebuild um, a, or build a new system um, and not continue to just like tweak the old institution of modern policing that has those roots um, to white supremacy and racism, that's what we need to do. It's not about um, just putting a new name on it. Um, it's really about dismantling uh, this modern institution that's got so many of these deep racist roots um, and imagining new services and systems that respond to all many, all the many different kinds of emergencies um, or public safety issues that we have in the community, uh, but don't, but ha- do that in a diversified way that's disconnected from that, that, that modern institution of policing. I think that's really important to distinguish police, the individuals, from the institution of policing, Hmm. um, because that's the problem. I mean, issues like this, Rashawn, can create some unexpected bedfellows. The conservative Koch Foundation is concerned about the, quote, militarization of police. And yet it's likely that this will become a politicized issue. Uh, In a fundraising email over the weekend, the Trump campaign wrote, we can't stand by while the left tries to defund the police. Uh, It goes on to say, this is the quote, which is why it's important that every patriot come together at a time like this to send a united message that we demand law and order. Talk to someone who has a very different relationship to the police from you, who sees those folks as trustworthy figures. Uh, Because it, it strikes me that the change you're calling for is fundamental and will require buy-in, no? Oh, of course. It's going to require a huge amount of buy-in. Um, the police have been, giving, get, have been given a, an increasing amount of responsibilities inappropriately, um, I think, uh, for decades, uh, if not centuries, that in lots of ways, if we defund and abolish the police as we know them, uh, communities are going to start having to retake up those responsibilities um, for things like maintaining order, quote unquote. Um, but also the, the question of what constitutes order is a deeply cultural um, and biased kind of like concept. Uh, and that a lot of folks, depending on your class, your race, your ethnic background, your cultural origin, um, will define that differently. And really, we've got to start taking um, the responsibility for defining what we want to see um, as communities uh, back from law enforcement. Uh, And that's a big part of what we would need to do. Um, But to the question of, you know, folks who have a lot of respect for law enforcement, um, I don't think that every law and every officer uh, of law has signed up to, you know, keep down black and brown and poor people. Um, I think that just like the military, a lot of folks take some of their best public service um, and, you know, protecting others and, and helping their community instincts into policing. Um, it's just unfortunate that those people's instincts and, and intentions are thwarted by the history and the kind of institutional functioning 
of this old historic uh, creation of modern policing um, and or the military um, where they don't actually get to go defend freedom. Um, they end up shooting kids in, you know, Iraqi streets. Um, and a lot of folks want to protect, um, you know, their community, but they end up hassling homeless people um, who have no place to go, uh, but who their boss says, you know, they've got to, the cop has to tell them to move along. Um, so really it's about taking those intentions and fit, fitting new institutions to those intentions so that all the, all the, the, the officers who bring goodwill and an, and, a, and an intention to serve um, into lines of work that can actually do that work and do that service that they want. Um, and I think it's also important to, men to mention that, you know, yeah, just briefly, Rashawn. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, that, um, that defunding the police, disarming the police um, is a strategy that can work because we know that so many officers, you know, go their entire career without even drawing their weapon, that they don't need um, to approach the whole world um, as a you know, hostile enemy um, and that that's that's a thing that can change and, and be better for even the officers. Rashawn Bliss, co-chair of the Denver Justice Project. I want to note that we've invited Denver Police Chief Paul Payson to speak with us, broach these issues as well. Still to come, Senate candidate and former Governor John Hickenlooper will find out this week what the financial penalties will be for his ethics violations. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Being member-supported carries a responsibility that we at Colorado Public Radio take seriously. I am humbled by the fact that people voluntarily give us money and puts a tremendous responsibility on our shoulders to give you back the best radio we can. It is an honor that people support this service and have done so for decades. I'm membership director Jason Moore. CPR is here because of members who invest in all that we do. Thank you for your generosity. Big political news came down late Friday afternoon when you might not have been paying the most attention. An independent commission ruled that former Governor John Hickenlooper violated state ethics rules twice while in office by accepting travel and perks he shouldn't have. The ruling could have an impact on both the upcoming Democratic Senate primary in which Hickenlooper is running against former House Speaker Andrew Romanoff. And if he's a winner there... The general election contest against incumbent Republican Cory Gardner. CPR's Andy Kenny is following the Hickenlooper ethics case. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you. Hello. And before we get into what Hickenlooper did, let's just make sure we're clear on the rule he broke. This is Colorado's gift ban, right? That's right. Colorado's voters approved something called Amendment 41. It bans public officials from accepting gifts above a certain value. That number can change, but for Hickenlooper, that limit was $59. What did Hickenlooper accept that was worth more than that? Well, quite a bit, according to the commission. They found that he should not have accepted uh, certain perks and, and travel for two different trips. One was to the Bilderberg meetings, which is a conference in uh, Turin, Italy. And the other was to the commissioning of the USS Colorado the submarine in Connecticut. So during the Italy trip, he actually paid for his own plane tickets, but the commission found that he accepted free stuff that came with the conference from the sponsors, which was actually Fiat Chrysler, the automobile company. So he had some meals and a, I believe a ride in a limo that the commission thought that he should have found a way to pay for. The other one, the Connecticut trip, he flew aboard a plane that was owned by a home building company. And that company 
also uh, hosted several events that Hickenlooper and others attended while they were in town for the commissioning. Now, I remember when this complaint was filed, there were a lot more than two violations alleged, right? That's right. So the Independent Ethics Commission actually investigated six different trips that he took in his last years as governor. And there were others that they declined to look at that were raised in the complaint, which was filed by a third party. They didn't look at those other ones either because the statute of limitations had expired or there were certain factual issues. They just didn't rise to the level of review. Those other four trips they investigated, uh, stuff like Hickenlooper flew on entrepreneur Kimball Musk's plane after officiating Musk's wedding in Texas. And Hickenlooper also accepted a flight back to Colorado on a businessman's plane after uh, Hickenlooper and his wife had been on the East Coast for his wife's medical procedure. And in those cases, the commission agreed that they fit under certain exceptions to the gift ban. Exceptions? Yeah, so the law, as it's interpreted, allows gifts from a quote, personal friend on a special occasion. Officials can also accept certain trips if they're acting as a representative of the state, but it was really that personal friend on a special occasion thing that was central to a lot of these uh, a lot of these cases. But doesn't that mean as long as you deem every lavish gift is coming from a friend for a special occasion, like you can accept whatever you want if you're a politician? Yeah, it's a really good question because it's such a broad idea. So the commission ended up wrestling with this idea of what is a friend? What is a special occasion? Is it a birthday? Can a special occasion just be seeing someone that you haven't seen lately? Here's Commissioner Bill Leone, and he's kind of wrestling with the 2018 flight from New Jersey that Hickenlooper took. So the amendment does create uh, an exception for gifts by relatives and personal friends on special occasions. One of the things this commission has struggled with for many years is uh, making sure to interpret that exception narrowly enough that it doesn't swallow the amendment. Because um, one of our comments that frequently comes out in meetings is that in politics, everyone seems to be a friend, depending on the uh, circumstances. And if we interpret it too broadly, it'll swallow the amendment. The group that brought this complaint was run by a one-time Republican rival of Hickenlooper's, I recall. Yeah, this is worth pointing out, and this is what Hickenlooper's campaign has been saying over and over again, is that the complaint was essentially filed by Frank McNulty, a former Republican House speaker uh, for part of Hickenlooper's time as governor. And he filed the complaint in 2018 while Hickenlooper was still in office, but it was looking like Hickenlooper would run for president at the time. McNulty had only formed the organization he used in this whole process, the Public Trust Institute, a couple days earlier. And Hickenlooper's team also alleges that McNulty got the uh, some of the research and material for the complaint from a national Republican opposition research firm. McNulty wouldn't quite confirm that for us. In just the last few seconds here, Andy Kenny, there was a lot of drama around the hearing itself. And the final question, what punishment will Hickenlooper face for all this? Just the last few seconds. That's right. So we saw Hickenlooper defy a subpoena from the commission to show up because he didn't want to do a virtual hearing. He wanted to do an in-person hearing. Hickenlooper could be fined uh, something like twice the value of the gifts received. They're going to have to do some math to figure out exactly what, how much that was. We'll see that later this week. CPR's Andy Kenny, who covers politics and public affairs. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how one restaurant has reopened and how it's faring. This is CPR News. 
Colorado Voices are part of the national conversation around race relations, and CPR News is listening. I'm hoping that we can start having those harder conversations that aren't common knowledge to people. Last week, Colorado Matters listening session checked in with Coloradans of different races, sharing their experiences during this moment of unrest and what's not being discussed. They did not see George Floyd as a child of God or as a human being. Is this who we want to be? Find the Colorado Matters listening session wherever you get your podcasts. At restaurants, it's the new normal. Menus posted that customers don't touch. Touchless payment. Tables in parking lots and streets. Since dine-in was allowed to resume May 27th, restaurants across the state have gotten creative juggling distance requirements and profitability. On Friday, Governor Jared Polis relaxed liquor laws so that you can get a drink at temporary outdoor tables. So how is all of this working out? We're going to check back in with Lee Driscoll. He operates about a half a dozen restaurants, including the Wincoop Brewery and the Cherry Cricket, both in Denver. And Lee, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Tell me about some of the ways you have had to get creative. Well, creative here, I think, is the opportunity to open patios. So um, what we found over the last week is we are starting to be able to open some of our patios that, you know, we can get to a, at at our our best locations, and that is patio, once it has the largest patios to, you know, close to 50% of sales. Mm. Um, That's that's way better than nothing, but uh, still presents huge challenges from an operational point of view. Right. You, of course, write a business plan around something closer to 100% capacity. Have you been allowed to expand patio space, make patio space of something that was not that before? We are in the process of uh, getting our applications approved. We've had a couple approved, and uh, it looks like we'll get a couple more approved. Frankly, our biggest challenge is at the Wincoop, where it would be critically important if, uh, for all those restaurants, if Wincoop Street could be shut down. Hmm. Um, but that presents challenges, obviously, for Union Station and managing people coming to and fro, because a lot of those places down in Lodo, um, you know, they don't necessarily have really big patios. So the critical opportunity to a place like that is is for the city to become creative and flexible about opening closing streets so that way that we haven't done in the past yeah that would be your ideal if that portion of wine cup could be closed down the the last time we had you yeah yeah go ahead yes that's right i think you know what's really interesting here i guess a little bit of a silver lining is that you know we're seeing all this creativity go into trying to make these spaces streets and sidewalks uh much more accessible to to people who want to frequent restaurants, and it gives it, you know, the potential vibrancy to the street, you know, is fabulous. So hopefully what we're going to see here is an acceleration, you know, through necessity, um, which is, we know, is the mother of invention. Hmm. Uh, for some of these things that take place, it could become really interesting going forward, you know, in the summers. Yeah. And closures and expanded patios. To the extent that it might transform the feel and the look of a city as well. The, the last time we had you on the show, you told us that you had to lay off about 500 employees, I think, total at the start of the pandemic. How many have been able to return thus far? I think the number is uh, between 50 and 100. Hmm. 
we're able to keep a core group of about 40 or 50 just to keep things running, so to speak, and, and manage the grab-and-go business. So we're, I think, somewhere up over 100 now. So we, what's that, 20% or so, we've, we've been able to bring back maybe 20, a little over 20%. Were you hearing any concerns from employees who were nervous to return to work because of their health or other reasons? Yes, there are definitely employees who are nervous to return to work uh, because you know of their health or they live in a situation, a family situation, where there's someone with an, an immune-compromised condition or an elderly person. So, yeah, there, there are definitely people concerned, and I think you know fairly so, uh, who are in those kind of situations about returning to work. Lee, who are the customers? What do you hear from them about why they are there? And what do you notice about who's not there? You know, the customers are awesome. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, you, you, generally this is a very difficult time, obviously, but you, there are these little glimpses of things that are that are really fun, and it is great to see people coming back. Um the vast majority of people would like to sit outside, though there seem okay. to be plenty of people who are willing to sit inside. Uh, some place like the Wing Coop, uh, you know, we have a 50-person limit for people inside, and it's got a capacity of approximately 1,000. So That's a big place. You kind of need your binoculars to see somebody else who's inside, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, which makes it impossible operationally to, to manage. But um, it, the people outside, it's great. It's the same feeling. You know, you just sit outside at a place like the Cricket, you know, at 2nd and Clayton or at the Wing Coop or it'll be ballpark when we get our permit or at Phantom Canyon Springs and we have a big patio on Grand Junction. And, and those people just seem to be so happy just to be our comeback, sit outside in the fresh air and have, an, have a Cricket burger or just have a beer, or just just socialize in a way that I think we all miss, really, really miss. Now, all of this, of course, is dependent upon decent weather. And even when it's, you know, summer and temperatures are warm, things can get dicey. They certainly did over the weekend with this derecho. Um, so a lot of this is weather dependent. A lot of this is seasonally dependent as well. It's a very different picture come fall and winter, isn't it? Yeah, it'll be a, a very different picture come fall and winter. Um the patios close in, you know, in, sorry, October-ish, depending on what you can do in terms of heating and other things in terms of those kinds of things. And yeah. on our weather, is, you know, as you know, it's quite unpredictable in the, in the, in the autumn. So uh, that will present huge, if not insurmountable, challenges, I think, for restaurants once the patio season is over. You know, one of the I think the hardest things for us anyway to deal with this pandemic is the lack of predictability to be able to look forward and say, okay, here's how we manage our way through the problem. Mm -hmm. um, so this summer we will do our best along with everybody else, I think, to, to manage using the patios to get to a position. I don't know how, what other restaurants are like, but for us that that's close to break even, but maybe not break even. Um, as opposed to, you know, a, a very challenging situation. But when the fall comes around, it's, go, it's going to be very difficult. And I think we just all have to hope for some form of therapeutic or some other breakthrough or some other thing that we can learn over this period of time that will, you know, make it safe for people to be in restaurants. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and hope for a vaccine. We all share that hope for so many different reasons. Lee, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Lee Driscoll, co-owner of the Breckenridge Wincoop Restaurant Group. Let's hear now from a restaurant worker, one who's not back on the job yet. Annie Sage Klontz lives in Denver, was laid off from a place in the Uptown neighborhood called Coperta. Annie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And explain why you're not at work right now. Um, I work for a very small independent restaurateur in Denver, inclusive of three total concepts, about 45, 50 total employees. We completely shut down on March 16th after receiving the order from Mayor Hancock. No takeout, no delivery, um, obviously no dine-in service. And the information that I've been receiving from my employer, um, and especially Chef Paul Riley, is that safety is key in this long-term strategy. And he was worried that adding himself to the pool of restaurateurs in Denver, offering takeout and delivery, that there was concern over restaurateurs cannibalizing themselves, fighting tooth and nail to get every last cent from takeout services. Mm. I was just going to ask why you didn't wind up shifting to takeout. Uh, But there's only so much, I suppose, that the market can support of that. If the restaurant where you work, Coperta in Denver, and how would you describe it? Kind of high-end Italian, I think? It has a focus on the cuisine of Rome and southern Italy. Okay. Um, If they reopen tomorrow, and I realize this is completely hypothetical, would you feel comfortable working? I am very glad you asked that. (laughs) Um, Another point that I think is important to make is worker engagement in the decision-making process, in planning meetings around what protocol is going to be, what service strategy is going to be. I personally consider myself a worker stakeholder. I know that not everyone may consider (laughs) workers to be stakeholders in this, but we absolutely are. I actually sent my own feedback on the draft guidelines issued by the Department of Public Health not too long ago, I guess a few weeks ago, because there are myriad obstacles to be strategized around. You know, how will service staff take orders without guests wearing masks while they're eating and drinking? Are we safe to stand any closer than six feet from the table? There needs to be innovative ways to acquire orders from guests without having to stand tableside or lessen the amount of time that we're interacting with guests, but still providing, you know, that warm hospitality that so many restaurants in Denver are known for and want to retain. Everything you just described there, these are all the things that you're probably kept up at night thinking about. Like, if the day does come, will all of these specifics be addressed and in a way that makes me comfortable? Well, I will say that... I spent about a month fretting every single day. And then I decided, hey, I have a good relationship with my employer. I worked for them at Beast and Bottle for four years prior to moving on to Coperta with a hiatus of about a year and a half in between. I have the ability to create a dialogue with them. And so actually very recently, I reached out and just simply said, hey, when you have discussions about the circumstances and how we move forward and how we strategize around these obstacles and challenges, 
I would like to be a part of that conversation. And it was met with positivity and assurance that I and my spouse, Kyle, would be included in service strategy talks. And so I feel very safe knowing hmm. that I will be part of the solution. And I, I would urge restaurant workers to get involved in their workplaces. Be respectful, but ask questions. State your needs. Offer feedback and suggestions once you do go back to work. This has to be an ongoing dialogue because this is an overwhelming, evolving game of strategy and adaptation. And I truly feel for the challenges that restaurant owners are facing, but I don't think that it's realistic to ask for restaurant owners and operators to think of every last detail. Mm. We're the people working the job. And to be perfectly honest, if you are a worker who goes to your employer and expresses concerns and you don't get met with empathy and the opportunity to be engaged, maybe it's time to move on, <laughs> to be quite frank. Do you miss the work, Annie? Do you miss the customers? I do. The reason that I returned was because I missed learning about food in detail. I missed having the opportunities to disseminate that information and that knowledge and have really engaging, exciting conversations with guests on an enlightening level, you know, getting to talk about the sourcing of a fish that we're serving that night. That's exciting to me. And I, I do truly, truly miss those opportunities for engagement Aww. with the public. So you have no real timeline now for when you return to work. That's just unclear. Correct. Uh, I've, I've heard through the grapevine sometime in June, but it's all up in the air. Annie, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for letting me be heard. Annie Sage Klotz and her spouse Kyle are on unemployment until the Denver restaurant where they work reopens. She adds that Congress ought to pass specific legislation to help restaurants beyond the PPP. She mentioned specifically the Restaurants Act of 2020, and that's an acronym, the Real Economic Support that Acknowledges Unique Restaurant Assistance Needed to Survive Act. A different Denver restaurant, Sputnik, has reopened with something unusual. CPR's Xandra McMahon went to check it out. By midday, Sputnik's reopening of its dining room was off to a slow start. You could say things were maybe even a little dead. I love the ghosts. They're awesome. I didn't even see them until we sat down, but they're very well done. Very lifelike. Posed throughout the restaurant, the ghosts help customers maintain a safe distance. We've got some playing uh, dice, and then we've got one just, yeah, kind of hanging out down at the bar. Owner Matt Labarge points out some of the ghostly poses. There's also a book-reading ghost and a ghost couple enjoying a date. The idea came from bartender Trevor Liebler early on, when Sputnik was still closed for dine-in service. It was getting really quiet uh, with no one in the restaurant, so we decided to put the ghost up to keep us company. Usually this stretch of South Broadway would be bustling. The restaurant is packed and sweaty on a normal weekend. It, it is actually kind of nice to have them. At first when I'd look at cameras, I'd, oh, there's people there. And I'm like, oh yeah, the ghost. But I think the idea was that things weren't going to be exactly how they were, and it was, you know, the ghosts of, of South Broadway, the ghosts of the restaurant industry, and, and just, you know... It, dealing with the unknown. And the ghosts are handmade by Liebler, the bartender. Uh, yeah, it's all 
found material. The only thing that I bought were the sheets and the styrofoam heads. And then he just used wire and old clothes and a bunch of newspapers and magazine, you know, crumpled up to make the bodies. It's a little bit of silliness amongst a whole lot of heaviness, and it's captured people's imaginations. It's been pretty fun. We actually got a call from the mile-high paranormal something or other wanting to come and investigate the ghosts, but we haven't, we haven't talked to them yet. But. He says the ghosts will stick around as long as social distancing rules do. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. Hot springs are normally thought of as therapeutic, but during the pandemic, they've been treated as gathering places where coronavirus could spread. So what's their status? We'll ask Vicki Nash, founder of a coalition called Hot Springs Connection. Vicki, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I think of hot springs pools and then those more intimate hot springs that are kind of like natural jacuzzis, people much closer together. First off, I understand the country's largest geothermal pool, the Glenwood Hot Springs, opens today. Do I have that right? That is absolutely correct. We were anxiously awaiting the the news from the state uh, to reopen uh, Glenwood Hot Springs, Iron Mountain Hot Springs in Glenwood. Uh, so we're very excited that they're now operating. Iron Mountain opening as well in Glenwood. Are, are most other hot springs taking the plunge soon? There, yes, most of them will be open by next week. Okay. I'm kind of, I've been taking a tally and kind of keeping track of everybody throughout this the state. So everybody's at different levels of reopening, but there are several that are operating in Pagosa Springs. The Springs Resort opened last week. Uh, They were open to lodge guests only, but now they've opened their pools to the general public on, of course, all with the new standards in place. Goodness, I think of so many of the hot springs I have visited, Vicki, that feel, at least, and I think, are mom-and-pop operations. This must have hit them hard. That's very true, Ryan. There's a lot of uh, smaller hot springs pools across Colorado, and, you know, that's their livelihood. And they had to lay off staff. Some of them were able to do maybe a few improvements during the last three months of being closed. But yeah, it's been really, really tough on these smaller facilities. Hmm. Well, what kinds of restrictions are in place to protect clients? What, what, will, lo- what will it look like if I go to a hot spring? Yeah, that's open? well, and it, it's a, you know, changes daily, it seems like. But there are new protocols in place and everyone's going above and beyond um, requirements generally. Um, Everything from adding more sanitation uh, uh, machines throughout the properties, disinfecting schedules, guests will definitely notice more staff visibly cleaning the bars that go out down into the pools. Um, all the employees will be wearing masks and uh, gloves. Uh, high ter- t- high touch surfaces will be cleaned on a regular basis. Doorknobs and things like that. Plexiglass shields at point of sale stations. 
So typical to what all the retail and restaurant businesses are are doing. And I have to imagine there are restrictions on capacity. Yes. So the capacity levels will be at 50%. And because each hot springs is so different, uh, some are requiring advanced uh, reservations, some is uh, kind of come to the front desk, first come, first serve. So I highly encourage everyone, uh, if they're planning to visit a hot springs, make sure they look at the facility's website so they fully understand the process that yeah. they'll uh, be expected to follow. Now, you mentioned employees wearing masks. Am I going to have to get some sort of face caney if I uh, (laughs) visit one of these hot springs? Interesting, interesting question. So, for instance, in Glenwood Springs, uh, our city does have a mandated uh, face covering uh, ruling right now. So any public area in the pools, guests will be required to wear a face covering. However, in the pools, it's they're not required to do so hmm. um, because the Center for Disease Control actually recommended that as well. Because some masks, when they do get uh, wet, they're going to be more difficult to breathe through. So in the pools themselves, they are not required. However, it's been interesting. I've been talking to Hot Springs owner-operators across the country and the question came up, hey, does anybody know about uh, face coverings that are made from swimsuit material? And there are a couple of companies. There's one in California in particular that everybody's um, kind of testing if they're interested in having those. So I ordered them. And, yeah, they're just – it's a company that manufactures swimwear, and they use the scrap material to make uh, – face masks, and they're very lightweight, dry quickly. So, so if there's that you wanted option. to wear one, Ryan, in the pool, you could order one of those. I'm thinking of some of the hot springs I visited. I mean, it, I'd be hard-pressed to keep six feet away from the people across from me. Yeah, it's that's going to be a challenge for sure. Of course, you can sit closer together if you're with your partner or oh. with your family. But... Um, Everybody just really has to be aware of of the distancing, even in the water. So, for instance, Iron Mountain Hot Springs has 16 smaller pools that are tiered by the Colorado River. Each pool is going to have a sign that says the maximum number of people that can be in that pool. So that, that will definitely give some good guidance for everyone. I just want to note that before the virus hit, you created a coalition of 17 hot springs on, I think, like a 700-mile driving loop in western Colorado. And it occurs to me that because vehicle traffic is supposed to flourish this summer versus air travel, uh, that that might be a bright spot for hot springs, do you think? Yes, I absolutely agree. So this coalition is called the Colorado Historic Hot Springs Loop, and we're in our fifth year of um, marketing together. And it's made up of um, Steamboat Springs, Chafee County, Pagosa Springs, Uray, and Glenwood Springs. So if you look at the Colorado map, 
you'll see that that literally does form a 720-mile loop, which is mostly on scenic byways Mm. and uh, over really beautiful mountain passes. So each of those destination marketing organizations um, work together because they all have hot springs in their towns. And we've partnered with the Colorado Tourism Office uh, to uh, promote all of our hot springs that are along that route in Western Colorado. And it's been very successful. And you're absolutely right. The drive market is really going to be the key on travel for the rest of the year, most likely. So it's a, it's actually kind of a little pilgrimage for some people. They see um, the website and go, oh, yeah, that is a good idea, and kind of make it one of their checklist items that they want to visit uh, all or portions of the route. Vicki Nash, uh, before we go from Hot Springs Connections, is it true that during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, people were advised to drink and gargle with Hot Springs water? Is that true? Uh, you know, I, I've i never actually seen that statement, but people did drink the water all the time. And it was the hot springs pools were considered medicinal and very much part of a health, health and wellness regime. Um, and that goes way back. I'll say the Ute Indians yeah, referred to definitely. them by the name Yampa, which means big medicine. Absolutely. Big medicine. A- absolutely. And throughout Colorado, the Native Americans used the waters. They would bring their horses and put and have them wade in the waters. Oh, my. So, <laughs> Not, yeah. Please don't do that so today. Really, please. I Vic- know. Wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah. I have to wrap you there, Vicki. <laughs> Thank down you. into the vapor cave. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for but, being with us. I appreciate it. That's Vicki yeah. Nash. She's founder and CEO of Hot Springs Connections. It's a coalition of natural hot springs. And she joined us from Glenwood Springs, where the big pool is opening, Iron Mountain as well today. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. <laughs> <laughs>